Let me just briefly introduce our new sermon series here for the month of January, leading up to our missions conference at the end of January. Uh, we're going to be going through the book of Jonah. And uh, if, if there's, there's a lot of threads that run through the Bible, there's certainly two. One thread is that God is on mission, always has been. Uh, to rescue the nations, every tongue, every tribe, his children that have gone wayward, right? God's on mission. The other thread is that God's people have failed to be on mission. As you read through the Scriptures, you look at the nation of Israel, uh, they, they were supposed to be a light to the world, they failed. Uh, you look when, in the Gospels, Jesus coming down hard on the Pharisees, Pharisees frowned upon Jesus, hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and those people. And then, and then you get to the book of Acts, when Jesus finally ascends and he tells his people, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And what do they do? They huddle in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 7, God sends massive persecution, right? Stephen is stoned, and then God's people are scattered. You get to the book of Revelation of the seven churches. It's an indictment against God's church for, for uh, complacency, lack of love, lack of mission, loving idols. So that's, that thread runs throughout the Scriptures. And then we get to the book of Jonah, and we see that Jonah is a book about God being on mission and God's people being called to mission. And what we're going to see in the four chapters of Jonah is each chapter really focuses in on a specific component that is absolutely critical to finding your place in God's mission. And so it's our hope as we teach through the book of Jonah and conclude with the missions conference at the end of January, that this would be a month that God would work your story as you read through the story of a man who found his place on mission. So Jonah chapter one this morning, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the words, the scripture will be on your sermon guide. As Keith mentioned, this, this uh, passage today is from Jonah, the book of one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish for the, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And, he, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. 
For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If I were to ask, and you don't have to raise your hand or give an audible answer, but if I were to ask you this morning, do you feel like you're on mission as God would have you on mission? I think if all of us were honest, we'd say no. And if I follow up with why, why aren't you on mission or why haven't you found your place in God's mission, that would be a complicated answer because I'd probably get a lot of different answers and you might even have trouble figuring out why am I not on mission? Why do I find myself being complacent when I know that God wants me to be on mission? It's a complicated answer because the heart is complicated. And what we're going to see in this story of Jonah over four chapters is a a long answer to that question where each chapter starts to hone in on a piece or a reason why we find ourselves not on mission, not finding our place in God's mission. Chapter one is all about God's pursuit. God's pursuit that responding to God's pursuit is critical to finding your place in God's mission. Now, why, why is that the case? Why is responding to God's pursuit so critical to finding your place in God's mission? We're going to look at the need for pursuit, the goal of God's pursuit, and the hope of God's pursuit. So let's start with the need for God's pursuit. When we read the book of Jonah, and when you get to the very end, the last verse we see very clearly that God's heart beats for this city of Nineveh that has 120,000 people in it that are lost and without hope. And it's a picture in the middle of the Old Testament that that's always been God's heart, that his heart has always bled for the nations, which is another way to say God's heart has always bled for the people that he created that ran away to follow other gods and to run into sin. He's a good, good father. His heart beats for the nations. His heart beats for your neighbor next door. His heart beats for your coworker in the cubicle next to you. His heart beats for the, uh, the person at the checkout at the grocery store you see all the time. His heart beats for the least and down and out of these in Jacksonville and beyond. But what's interesting here is that while it's very clear in the book of Jonah that God's heart beats for the nations, what we see here is that there's a problem. That the vehicle that God has designed to take the gospel to the nations is broken. Jonah represents Israel. Jonah is a prophet in Israel. Israel was to be the light of the world. And what we see here is the vehicle to take the gospel to the nations is broken down. And in our day, God's heart still beats for the nations. The same would apply that the church, the new Israel, is broken down. 
That the very vehicle, you and me, the church that God has used and wants to use to bring hope to the nations is broken down. In other words, you, you can't find your place in God's mission until you're first a recipient of his mission. That you can't find your place in God's mission, which is about pursuit, until you have been pursued. And that's what we see here in chapter 1. So first of all, who is Jonah? Who is this man? Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The word of the Lord came, that's a technical Hebrew phrase that describes the calling of a prophet. That Jonah was a prophet of God. And we don't really hear a lot about him in the scriptures except for one place that gives us actually a pretty good idea of who this man was. And it's in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. And we learn that Jonah lived during the economic boom of the northern, tri- the northern kingdom of Israel under King Jeroboam II. And we read in verse 25 of 2 Kings 14, King Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. So in other words, you've got Jonah, who was a prophet of God, whose job was to stand before King Jeroboam and say, King Jeroboam, God has told me to tell you that you will restore Israel's boundaries to the glory days of old, of King David, of King Solomon. Now, what a great job. What a great assignment for a prophet. Your majesty, Israel, you're going to restore Israel. It's going to be great. Good news from a prophet, which is not typically what we see in the the scriptures, right? Prophets typically delivered bad news of sin, repentance, and judgment, and they weren't liked for it. But here you have Jonah, right, delivering good news of, of prosperity to the king, and he's liked for it. Now, things are about to change drastically for Jonah. Whether you want to call him a spoiled prophet at this point, uh, delivering good news, well-liked by everybody, that's about to change. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, so what do we know about Nineveh? God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was one of the the greatest, most intimidating cities of the time. It was the capital of Assyria, which was a a brutal nation, which was known for its, its torture and its tactics to brutalize nations, including Israel. It was a great enemy of Israel. Israel hated Nineveh. You say, well, and God calls Jonah to go preach against it. That actually is not a a, a big deal. Prophets were called uh, all the time to preach against nations or to call out the sin of the nations, but typically, most of the time, they did it within the confines of Israel. So they would preach from Israel, surrounded by close companions and friends, about an evil nation. Here, God does something very different with Jonah. Jonah, you're not going to stay in Israel and do this. You're going to go to Nineveh, into the heart of it, and you're going to preach a message of repentance to this evil 
nation that has brutalized you. Give you some idea of what this would be like. It would be like God asking you in the middle of World War II to go to the center of Berlin and preach a message of repentance to Hitler in Germany. Or, let me draw it a little bit closer to home, it would be like God asking you today to go into the center of an ISIS camp and preach a message of repentance. You say, what's the result of that? Well, assuming they don't repent, it means death. You're probably not gonna survive that. Now you get the context and you go, oh, makes sense. Now I know why Jonah fled, right? Verse three, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. That was the opposite way of Nineveh, literally 180 degrees opposite. And it was a city in Spain that was considered to be at that time the end of the earth. I mean, Jonah went as far away as possible. And you say, I get it, right? I see why he fled. I mean, who would want to go die preaching a message of repentance to an evil nation that's probably not going to repent, right? You say, that makes sense. Jonah was not, didn't, didn't want to die for God. He, he wasn't willing to do that. He wasn't willing to go into this dangerous territory and preach the message of repentance because they probably wouldn't repent, which would mean he would die. You say, that, that's why. No, that wasn't the reason. In fact, we find out the reason why Jonah wouldn't go in chapter 4, verse 2. After he had gone to Nineveh, preached repentance, they repented And then we learn the real reason why Jonah didn't go. Verse 2 of chapter 4, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He ran not because he thought they wouldn't repent and he would die. He ran because he knew they would repent, that God would relent from wiping them out, and he couldn't bear the thought of that. You see, he was a successful prophet in a successful nation. And as long as Nineveh was around, Israel's security, safety, success was at jeopardy. And Jonah couldn't bear the thought of losing that. Now, here's what's striking. Jonah is a prophet of God, which means he was probably a law-abiding prophet of God. He was probably clean, moral, That's what a prophet was. And yet there was something in the center of Jonah's life apart, and it wasn't God. It was success of Israel. It was security of Israel. It was personal success. It was personal security. That was at the center. And when that was threatened, Jonah fell apart. He ran. He ran. What do we learn here? You can run from God under the guise of religion and morality. 
you can run from God under the cover of Bible study and prayer and church. Because running from God is not merely breaking a rule of God. Running from God is building an identity apart from him. Running from God is having something else in the center of your life, your heart. And when that gets threatened, when that gets threatened or you're about to lose that, despair sets in. And that's what happened here to Jonah. God didn't wipe out the very nation that threatened what Jonah was living for. That was his life. That was his purpose. Beneath the guise of his prophet and moral, clean living, all of that was there. But something was at the center that had a hold of him. And when that was threatened to be gone, he ran. I will not lose that. And so he ran the opposite way. And the result was psychological death. Interesting. What does it say Jonah did? He boarded the ship, and he went down into the inner part of the ship, and it said he fell asleep. Now, this wasn't a normal sleep. Uh, For one, when the storm kicked up, it was threatening to break the ship apart. The sailors are are scared to death, and what's Jonah doing? (laughs) He's asleep. In fact, the Hebrew word here for sleep, it means a, a deep sleep or to be stunned or dazed. That Jonah is in almost like a trance here. He, he is so despairing. He has, he has come to a place of what you could call psychological death. He's, he's about to lose what defines him. And he's running in an effort not to lose it. Kierkegaard in his book, Sickness Unto Death, describes sin this way. Sin is to despair of getting self before God. And then the despair of trying to be yourself without God. In other words, sin is trying to build an identity apart from God. Consider, uh, consider two parents that have a child that they love deeply. And that child starts to rebel. Child starts to make poor decisions. Child starts to go down a destructive path, cuts off communication. You've got one parent who is sad and distressed. You've got another parent who absolutely falls apart. Sickness unto death, despairing. Uh, uh, to the point of paralysis, can't live anymore. Now, what's happening there, right? Well, you've got one parent that loved their child for their child's sake. You've got another parent that was loving their child to build an identity. That 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 was functionally at center. And when that started to, to go away and slip away, it was devastation, because it wasn't just that that child is, is going down a destructive path. It was my identity is falling apart, whether it be as a successful parent 
You see the difference there. Something, something good, love for a child, became paramount. That became center. Why is responding to God's pursuit critical to finding your place in God's mission? Because you need God's pursuit just as much as the nations need God's pursuit. And that pursuit can go under the radar, or you can see that you don't need it necessarily when you're unaware of what is really functionally at the center of your heart that is giving your life meaning, worth, that's justifying you, giving you purpose. But when you see sin on that deeper level, you understand that there are things at the center and you understand that you need God's pursuit to remove that. So need for God's pursuit, that's one. Second, let's look at the goal of God's pursuit. Notice the the relentless nature of his pursuit, of God's pursuit in chapter one. right, verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. We see here his pursuit of Jonah comes in the form of a storm. Then down to verses 11 to 13. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. You see what's happening here. The storm's growing stronger and stronger. The sailors say, Jonah, what do we do? He says, throw me into the sea. They say, no, we're not going to do that. They row hard to get back to shore. And they can't. The sea grows stronger. The storm grows stronger and stronger. And what you see here is the intensification of the storm is the intensification of God's pursuit. That he will use whatever means available to him, which for God is everything, to get Jonah's heart back. Everything. He will intensify that storm until he gets Jonah's heart back. And the irony of this is that the only way the storm was going to kill Jonah was if he kept running. That's the only way this storm was going to kill Jonah was if he kept running. When he finally stopped running and they threw him into the sea and the sea grew calm and the storm subsided, we see that God begins to get hold of Jonah's heart. You know, when Jonah got hurled into the sea, it probably felt like suicide for him. I mean, face value, certainly. He gets thrown into not a calm sea. He got thrown into the the raging sea. Then it grew calm. Felt like suicide probably. What's the goal of God's pursuit? What's his goal with Jonah? It's to get Jonah to the very place he was trying to run from. You say, well, what's that? Beginning of verse 3. Flee 
from the presence of the Lord. End of verse three. Away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. You see, this presence of the Lord, it's not a spatial reference to God's presence. It's a relational reference to God's presence. It's his relational presence that Jonah was running from. It was that God in the center that Jonah was running from. For Jonah, it was success of Israel, success as a prophet, security. That was at the center. And he was running from God being at the center. That's what it means to run from the Lord, is to have something else at the center. Jonah was building an identity apart from God, even though he was a prophet. And God pursued him. There's, there's a couple riveting stories of God's pursuit in the New Testament that really, uh, they have very different endings, but they get at the heart of what it means for God to pursue. It's the story of the rich young ruler and the story of Zacchaeus. Both men were rich. Uh, both men were very successful. Both men had strong careers. Jesus pursued them both. He pursues the rich young ruler and says, give away all that you have to the poor. And what's it say the rich young ruler did? Because he walked away sad. You see, at the center of his life was wealth, career, whatever it was. That was at the center. Jesus said, give it all up. And he walked away sad. See, when when something is at the center other than God, you will despair. You will be sad because there's always a threat to losing it. Now, other story, Zacchaeus, very different ending. On the other hand, Zacchaeus, when Jesus pursues him, gives away half of what he owns and restores fourfold all those he had cheated. He was a tax collector. He was a cheat. Now, both men, right, faced with the pursuit of Jesus and something at the center besides Jesus. One man says, I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to run. And he runs away sad. Both men, probably when they had to give up what defined them, give up what was giving them purpose in life, give up what was proving their identity, probably both of them felt like suicide to give up what was, was their very meaning, their very life. How can I give this up? The rich man chose not to and went away sad. Zacchaeus gave it up and found tremendous, found tremendous joy. You see, when, when you functionally have something at the center besides God, it will feel like suicide to give it up or to let it go. I mean, think about it. Whatever it is at the center that defines you, if it's your wealth, giving it up, is the, that's, that's suicide. Or if it's um, a successful parent, right? To give up that identity feels like suicide. Or if it's a career, that your success at the career and, and, and to let that go, it feels like suicide because you feel like you're hurling yourself into the sea. That's exactly what happened with Jonah. He was hurled into the sea. He let go of it. 
But the reality is when you, so to speak, hurl yourself into the sea, when you let go of that very thing at the center, something much different happens. That brings us to our third, third point. Why do you need to respond to God's pursuit to find your place in God's mission? First, I'll say it again. You need God's pursuit as much as the nations need God's pursuit. You need God's pursuit as much as your neighbor needs God's pursuit. Even if you've been in Christ for many years, because other things find their way to the sinner. Irony of the story, who is the sinner, S-I-N-N-E-R, in this story? It's not the sailors. Clearly, they are sinners. But Jonah makes them look good, doesn't he? The prophet of God makes the sailors look good. In fact, they become at least God-fearers and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. You see, Jonah had to receive God's grace and pursuit and love before he could ever go preach God's grace and God's love. And the goal of God's pursuit is to get him, God, back in the center. Right? Now, the last point, what is the hope? What is the hope of God's pursuit. Chapter one actually finishes on a very positive note. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God sends a storm to pursue Jonah. God sends a fish to save Jonah. Here you have a prophet of God, a law-abiding prophet of God that didn't need to become a better person or a, a cleaner person in the sense of that he was a sinful man and he was, he was a clean, religious, moral prophet of God. What Jonah needed was conversion. He needed conversion. He needed to be thrown in the sea and then saved to be converted that God would be at the center and nothing else. You know, when you get hurled into the sea, so to speak, when, when that very thing that defines you makes life worth living, when, when you functionally let go of that in your heart, and it feels like suicide, it feels like you're letting go of the very thing that defines you and you hurl yourself into the sea, the question becomes, if I do that, will God save me? Uh, will God forgive me? Will God's love remake me? Because that's what we see here, is that when Jonah gets tossed into the sea, a raging sea when he gets tossed in, yes, it did go calm, but initially a raging sea, Beneath the storm, in the midst of the storm, beneath the waves was God's love, there to rescue Jonah, there to remake Jonah, there to convert this prophet of God, that functionally God would be at the center. But the question is, how do you know? Because it's a scary proposition. When you think about it, and I, and I hope you've been identifying maybe what is at the center of your heart other than God, when you think about the thought of letting that go, functionally at a heart level, letting it go, anxiety, 
fear, all these things creep up. And the question becomes, if I let it go, will God save me? Will he forgive me? Will his love really remake me? And the answer is, at the end of verse 17 is the hen. Three days and three nights. And that takes us to Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. When Jesus said, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then Jesus says, something greater than Jonah is here. How do you know God will save you? How do you know that that when you do what you feel like is suicide, that his love will remake you? Because Jesus was hurled into the sea. Jesus was hurled into God's wrath and not saved. You see, you won't drown because Jesus did drown. Jesus was given up by the Father so that you would find life. That's your assurance. That whatever worldly thing is at the center, that when you let that go, that God will save you because Jesus wasn't. Jesus drowned. Jesus fell so that you wouldn't. My wife and I this past, well, not this past week, but the week before Christmas, we took our kids to see the amazing, amazing light show off of Gervin Road in Jacksonville, Florida. There is this neighborhood off of Gervin Road that has, I don't know how they figured it out, but all the neighbors put up lights. It's amazing. Now, we had heard about this, and actually conversations came up about the lights at Gervin Road, and you need to go see it. I hadn't seen them yet, but I had heard enough talk about it that I, in conversations I say, hey, probably a good thing to do. I mean, I hear it's amazing. You know, it might be a good thing. Take your kids, take your family, go see the lights off Gervin, right? Then we went. And it was amazing, especially the one section. I don't know what street it was, but it was unbelievable. The lights crossing the street from tree to tree. To, I mean, just mind-boggling. My recommendation, before I had actually seen them firsthand, to actually after I had seen them firsthand, changed dramatically. Now I will say with great enthusiasm, you need to go see those lights. They're amazing. There's a big difference between telling someone the theory of a loving and pursuing God and telling someone of a God who has loved and pursued you and continues to love and pursue you unto salvation. That is why responding to God's pursuit for that, those things that creep into the center of your life that go under the radar. That's why responding to God's pursuit, his love, his pursuit of you as a child is absolutely critical to finding your place in God's mission because you can't go be about the mission and preach grace until you've received it. And not just once, but on a daily basis because those things that get out of the center and God gets in the center, guess what? Every day those things creep back. And so every day you understand that you are a recipient of God's relentless pursuit of his love for you. 
And when you're receiving that, that is the beginning of finding your place in God's mission. That's when your heart comes alive. That's when you don't talk to people about the theory of a loving and pursuing God, but you talk to them about a God who has loved and pursued me and who is pursuing you. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us as a people for feeling like we've made it or we've arrived or that you pursued us once years ago when we came to Christ and that we really don't need your pursuit as much anymore, that we've, we've figured out this kind of clean, uh, a religious, moral life. I pray that you would help us, and, and specifically that your spirit would go deep this morning into the hearts here to make us aware of those things that are functionally at the center, that keep us from receiving your loving pursuit, that keep us from engaging in your mission. That, Father, even this week, as we start off a new year, that we would simply be in the posture of receiving. That we would be in the posture of recognizing what is functioning at the center. That you, God, would remove it and put yourself squarely in the center for us. That we would begin this year finding our place in your mission because we understand that not just once, but day after day, we are a recipient of your mission. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.